You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 59. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are talking with former National Geographic staff writer and editor, Alan Merson. Alan worked for the National Geographic Society for over 20 years, beginning his tenure during the height of Nat Geo's influence in the 1980s, and staying on with the magazine as it went through a series of dramatic shifts in both its mission and approach towards storytelling. In many ways, what Alan saw happening at the National Geographic Society is indicative of larger trends in the big-picture media landscape— Every media organization on the planet has been challenged by their dramatic changes in the way people consume media over the past several decades. But what happened to the National Geographic Society is particularly interesting and instructive. As you'll hear in the interview, Alan strongly believes that Nat Geo took the wrong approach towards dealing with these changes. And he has clearly put a a lot of thought into what the ideal alternative approach might have looked like. Of course, Alan recognizes that at this point, it is too late for Nat Geo to change its approach. The company and all its media assets were sold to the Murdoch family and 20th Century Fox in September of 2015. So stay tuned to hear this fascinating insider's perspective on the downfall of the National Geographic Society. All right. I'm here with Alan Merson, who is a former staff writer and editor for National Geographic. Um, and also the host and producer of the new podcast series, Searching for Bernie. How are you, Alan? I'm doing all right, man. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Um, I, I want to start off with uh, some background. Um, I'm curious to learn how you first became interested in journalism and how this led to your work with National Geographic. Well, in some, some ways, I'd have to condense, you know, decades of life history into a thumbnail, which I'll do for you. But <laughs> gosh, when I was a kid, you know, we got National Geographic magazine and uh, my I became entranced, really, romance by photography. My dad, uh, I got an Instamatic camera when I was a kid. My dad built me a darkroom, um, got very involved with photography. I was photo editor of my news editor of my high school paper, but photo editor of my college paper. And when I got out of school, when I got out of college in 81, I floated for a couple of years working a variety of different jobs in D.C. for consulting firms and on Capitol Hill, um, but figured out relatively quickly that I enjoyed writing. I started writing a lot, and I liked it. And I had a friend who worked at National Geographic, So I actually got a job there about four years out of school um, in their educational media division. So this was a now defunct division that sort of became school publishing. But they created, you know, educational and curriculum materials for schools, uh, K-12 mostly. And after five years of that, there was an opening on the magazine staff. Now, to be a photographer at National Geographic, you've really got to work your way up. Uh, at least at the time, that's the way it worked. You'd started a small paper and moved to a bigger paper. And after years of toiling in the vineyard, they would, you know, eventually maybe tap you for an assignment or two. 
as a photographer, writing was a much easier road in. You took a writing test to get on the staff, and I took it and passed. And starting in 1990, I became a staff writer and later an editor on the magazine staff. Um, so that was my that was my road in, and I I love the magazine just because it it really held up a an optimistic and positive light on the world by you know by and large. Uh, it was a, a magazine that, in maybe in some Pollyannish ways, at certain times, uh, captured something about the world that I think was that gave people hope, and so it was a, and it was, and I think perhaps remains. I don't know. I left there in two thousand and eight, but it was a wonderful place to work with a lot of very talented people. So, that's the short version. So what kind of stories uh, did you write about when you were working uh, for the magazine? Yeah, well, there were a handful of people that actually had beats. You know, there was there was an environment editor and there was a science editor. But by and large, the writing staff, we were all generalists. So my uh, stories ranged all over the place. I did a, a cover story about uh, the Everglades in Florida some years ago. My first story was about migratory beekeepers. These are people who rent their bees out to uh, farmers in the Central Valley of California to pollinate, you know, almond crops and uh, citrus crops, and then they will truck all their bees back to Minnesota. This this one family I followed took their bees back to Minnesota in the summertime, where they just kind of put the bees to pasture and let them make, make honey. So it was sort of a sub, you know, subculture of American agriculture story. Did a story about Jerusalem, feature story about Jerusalem. I did a story about a, a commune in Missouri. So it was really a wide mix of things. Some of it was feature writing. A lot of it was uh, caption writing, really. They, the magazine, as you probably know, is primarily a picture magazine. In fact, the photographers used to call the, the writing the gray border for their pictures. You know, no one would actually <laughs> read what we wrote. They were just there for the pictures, and maybe they'd read a, a caption or two, or as we call them, legends. Um, and the, the odd thing is, if you wanted to be read as a writer at Geographic, you were better off writing picture captions than you were writing feature stories. So I did a lot of that as well. And the, again, the stories were just all over the map, literally and figuratively. You worked for National Geographic for over 20 years um, I mean, a lot of changes happened at, at the organization over that time period. Uh, I'm just kind of curious to hear, you know, from your perspective as a writer and editor, what did you see? You know, what were you seeing happening? And, you know, what was sort of the attitude from within the, the organization? Yeah, that's a I mean, it's a it's a huge question. And I I think I'd answer it by saying what what I realized over time was how the magazine had changed. And I think th that the change is really what put you and I in touch, I think, initially. And, and, the, and the change was uh, that the magazine was not always the conservation and environmentally minded magazine that I think a lot of people think it was. I mean, it has been at certain periods, but I'll tell you a, a quick story, which really kind of opened my eyes to this about Gosh, it was about 10 years ago. I walk into a store here in Bethesda, Maryland, where I live, um, and it's a, it, was a, it was a trophy shop. I would go there in the spring and the fall to pick up the stuff for my kids, the teams that my kids were playing on. And um, 
the gentleman who worked there was must have been in his 80s. Um, a tall, gray, kind of crotchety guy, but with a good heart. And we'd see each other every spring and fall. And one day I walked in there and he kind of nodded at me and we started to talk. And he said, he said, where do you work anyway? I said, National Geographic magazine. He said, boy, he said, I used to love that magazine. He said, now I hate it. I said, you hate it. Why do you hate it? Because most people, when I would tell them I work, they would say, they would gush and they would say, oh, what a wonderful magazine. Not this guy. I said, how come? He said, during World War II, we, the society, because he was a member, gave maps to General Eisenhower to help defeat the Nazis. And he said, during the Korean War, you told us where our boys were on the peninsula. He said, now, though, all you do is, you know, elephants and global warming. And I laughed and I said, well, you, you know, things change and so on. And I try to make the case for what we were doing now, you know, big cat initiatives and all kinds of environmental coverage. And if you'll excuse my language, but he said, um, he said, I don't care. He said, I hate that shit. And it w and when I drove home, I was thinking, what exactly was he trying to tell me? And what I discovered as I went back to look at issues from that era, from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, really the golden age of National Geographic, what I discovered was that the magazine talked to people as though they were members of a society, that they were part of something bigger than themselves, but perhaps something a little smaller than the whole world. In other words, the magazine embraced the world and was interested in the entire world, but it also had a sense of who, what it was and who its members were and what the values were that animated that, that community. And what happened over time was the magazine lost that anchor and really became much more of an environmental magazine, a magazine that focused on animals and landscapes and water and the planet. And in fact, about 10 years ago, the then CEO of the company, John Fahey, changed the mission statement of the geographic from the increase in dissemination of geographic knowledge, which is pretty generic, to a new mission statement, which says to inspire people to care about the planet. And that transition, we can talk a little bit about that, but what, what happened over time was the, the stories became less people-focused and more environmentally focused. And I think in a lot of ways, and this is a longer conversation, but um, in a lot of ways, I think it was to the detriment of the, of the magazine. I think that people turned, like this gentleman, turned away from it for a whole host of reasons. And, um, and I'll give you one of them real quickly. And that is the Wall Street Journal actually had an interview with John Fahey some years ago. This was four or five years ago. And in it, the journal asked John Fay, again, he was the chairman and the CEO of the society until recently. Uh, the journal asked, what are people reading? And he said, uh, he said, oftentimes readers will tell us that they're interested in stories about the environment. But the fact of the matter is that's not what they read. And I thought it was an interesting quote because what he's saying is we know that people don't really care about, they say they care about it, but they don't really care about it. They don't really read the stuff. Um, yet they continue to produce it. So you asked about the change. That's to me was the, the seminal change. When you go back and look not at 10 years, but at 50 years, you can see the evolution or the devolution in, in my eyes of what the magazine was and what it's become. 
it sounds like you're talking about sort of two really important changes within the magazine. I mean, one is on the surface, the magazine is shifting the type of coverage that they have and focusing more on environmental issues and less on, you know, these issues that revolve, that focus on people and, and sort of human society. You know, the, the subtext of that is they stopped listening to their membership, right? And they stopped treating their membership as if they're a, a part of this society, right? Yeah, they. I think there was a sense that this gentleman that I was t- telling you about, I think he had a sense of membership, that he was really part of something. And the new management that came in in the mid-90s decided to take this, the, the National Geographic Society in another direction. And that was, you're not a member anymore, really. You're, you're a consumer. You're a customer. And my qu- the question is, what is it that you want? Do you want a magazine? Do you want hiking boots? Do you want a trip to the Galapagos? Because we have a whole menu of consumer products here that you know, may f- fill the needs that you have. And we're here to serve those needs. It's a very, very different model on how to build a business. And, and it didn't, it, I don't think it really ended up working because as, as you may or may not know, the National Geographic Society, or let me qualify that, all of its media properties, its magazine, its book division, uh, all the media properties of Geographic were sold to Rupert Murdoch and 21st Century Fox for 720 some million dollars in September. So it's no longer really, the, the nonprofit still exists as a grant-making institution, but there's no media property that any longer is under the National Geographic Society umbrella. It's all a subsidiary of Fox and Murdoch's News Corporation. I mean, do you see that as a failure of the National Geographic Society? I mean, does that indicate that they ultimately failed in their original mission? Well, I mean, original. I, I, I would, I would wonder how far back do we go for original? You know, eighteen eighty-eight at its founding, uh, nineteen ninety-six when John Fahey takes over. It depends. You know, I've I've said to friends of mine that, in some ways, uh, you know, when John Fahey came in at Geographic, he talked a lot about National Geographic, the brand. So a lot of his work was about selling the National Geographic brand. And initially that was about selling National Geographic furniture. You know, they had a line of branded furniture. They had National Geographic coffee beans and National Geographic wristwatches and, you know, National Geographic cheeses of the world. There was a whole range of kind of brand attempts to extend the brand and monetize that. And that wasn't, I don't think, especially successful. So in the end, what he ended up doing was selling the entire brand to Murdoch. So I don't know whether or not you would consider that a success or a failure. I don't think it was a it was a good way to end. I don't think most people look at it and say that's what the the end point was. I think it was a kind of desperation because I don't think they had any sense as to what to do with those media properties because the media game, as you well know, is changing so quickly that the bottom was falling out and they had a buyer. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, to me, I, I thought I thought there were other avenues to pursue. I had a a, a project online called SocietyMatters.org, and the site is still up. I had to to shut it down because they sent their lawyers after me. Um, but the site is still there, and the argument I made for four and a half years was there was another avenue to go 
to sustain the geographic as a nonprofit membership society. Um, so I made that case online and never really went anywhere. And clearly I failed because it was eventually, you know, sold. So that was that. Hmm. Whether or not it was the intention all along, I don't know. You'd have to ask, you know, the folks who, who orchestrated the whole deal. It sounds like you're making the argument that, you know, they just made a series of sort of wrong decisions about how to deal with all of these sort of emerging media markets um, and all these changes that were happening in sort of the, the world of journalism over the past 20 years. I mean, does that that sound accurate? And like, I mean, what, you know, and, and what was your pitch? Like, you know, you, you mentioned the website you started, Society Matters. I mean, what, what were you arguing for? You know, what right. did you think they could do to right. deal with these all these complicated situations in, in a, a better way? Right. That's a, it's a great question and a very fair question. And I'd say there are two parts to it. One is, you're right. I mean, obviously, there have been huge shifts. But I think what, what's happened was is that they, I think, convinced themselves that elephant pictures was really what they were about. You know, great pictures of bald eagles. They just had the corner on that. They did it better than anybody else. And what they had, obviously, back when you were reading it as a kid and when I was reading as a kid, is they had a printing press and they had a, a specials on PBS, one of you know four channels you'd get on your TV. So what they had was they had a pipeline to your house and they had they, they were great pictures. But what you're discovering as a as a wildlife you know document documentarian is that all of these tools now are in the hands of tons of people and really at some level the quality of their pictures is not all that much better than tons of other stuff you can get out there. So to move into this new media age and say, we're the elephant picture people and we're the bald eagle you know, picture people and the cheetah people, I would just say, well, do you see what Matt's doing? You see the films Matt's making? Those aren't bad. Those are pretty damn good. In fact, he just won an award at the DC Environmental Film Festival. So I think to, to, to play that card and say, pay us for these elephant pictures, I thought was a losing proposition. So that gets to the second part, which is what was the option? What could they do? Well, as you also know, because you're you're active online, I, I can see what you're trying to build in Boise with the film festival and, and the rest is is that every publication wants to become a hub and a community and a center for conversation and that people should feel some sense of belonging to it. And geographic, unlike the New York Times and the Washington Post and any other media property you could name, had that baked into their name, the National Geographic Society. So I went to John Fahey back in 2006 after another round of layoffs. We were having layoffs about every two years. And I survived the one in 2006. I didn't, I got hit in 2008. But in 2006, I sat down with him for coffee. And I said to him, uh, we talked for about an hour, but the main question was this. I said to him, when you market the society, when you try to think about the future of the National Geographic Society, does the word society have any value to you? Um, or is it just a vestige from the old days that gets in the way? And he said to me, it's a vestige from the old days that gets in the way mm -hmm. because no one wants to belong to anything. People just people just want what they want. You, Matt, might want a documentary film, and I might want 
you know, those hiking boots and someone else might want cheeses of the world. And his model was a consumer model that said, I will serve up a buffet of goods for you to choose from. And when he told me this, this was in 2006, I said, with all due respect, I disagree. I think people will belong to something if you give them a reason to belong. You give them some kind of mission statement that makes it attractive to be part of this community. What he did, for reasons we can discuss, I think embraced the environmental piece of the, of the geographic's past, and it's clearly there, and said that's going to be our centerpiece. That is what we're going to grow on, despite the fact that he told the Wall Street Journal, as I mentioned, no one reads environmental stories. It's not They say they're interested in it, but they don't read it. So it begs the question, why would you move forward with a mission statement built around a topic area that he's already admitted no one's interested in? So my argument on Society Matters was you need to build on the notion of society and the, and the idea that animated geographic in its golden age, which was what that elderly gentleman had said to me, which was, you talk to me like I was part of something that was bigger than my home and my local community, but smaller than the world while simultaneously engaging the world. And that to me was the sweet spot that we walked away from that no one was able to articulate. I tried, I failed, but that's what I was, I was making the case for. And I can give you a little bit more detail about that if you want, but that was the general direction I was hoping I could persuade them to go. I mean, it seems like a shame, right? Because, I mean, National Geographic was, like you said, they they were right in that sweet spot. I mean, they accomplished that before this era of the Internet. Now we're in this era where you can look at many, many business models online that are based upon that same idea of creating a community um, and bringing people in and sharing perspectives that they wouldn't otherwise see, but, you know, treating right, them but, as members. Absolutely. But here's the problem. And, here, and this is... This is the problem that John Fahey faced, which was, to me, the sweet spot was, you know, we gave maps to Eisenhower to help defeat the Nazis. What does that mean? It means that the National Geographic was at its at its best. It wasn't there in the 30s, but it, it got there from the from World War II to about 1980, had a sense that, you know, we published stories like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Architect of Freedom. James Madison, architect of the Constitution, you know, our, our, our land through Lincoln's eyes. It was a sense that there was some project that was underway, you know, in the United States particularly, but in the West more generally. You know, we also did, we did special bicentennial issues for the French bicentennial and the Australian bicentennial, because in the editor's minds at that time, those countries were sister countries to us. They shared our values in a way that, say, China doesn't or Saudi Arabia doesn't, right? So it was an engagement with the whole world, but a sense of who we are and who we're not, what matters to us and what doesn't matter. The problem with that editorial slant or that editorial bias or that editorial interest was that you can't get into China if you're publishing stories about Thomas Jefferson. That's a business market that will be closed to you. But if you do stories about elephants, you're welcome. You're, you're, the doors will swing open for you. And that's precisely what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years. I'll tell you a very quick story that illustrates the point. In 2007, the editors got together to plan a special issue 
that was going to be key to the Beijing Olympic Games, you know, in China. So it's late, uh, it's early 2007, like January, and they're planning about, you know, 15 months in advance for this special issue all about China. So they come up with about eight to 10 different stories. One of them is about censorship in China. And I wanted to work on that story. So I got in touch with the assigning editor and worked out that I was going to work in part on that story um, to do the legends, to do the sidebars, whatever was was necessary. Well, the story got assigned to a, a writer by the name of Ha Jin, National Book Award winner, Chinese expat, teaches at Boston University. And Ha Jin turned in his censorship in China manuscript in about April or May of 2007. So this is a year prior to the games. In July of 2007, Geographic sends out a press release that after years of negotiation, they finally have uh, signed an agreement to publish the magazine in mainland China, right? So this is in the summer of 2007. A few months go by, and the... I'm watching the story docket in about October, November of 2007. The story censorship in China disappears from the docket for that special issue on China. And I call up the editor and say, what? I send him an email and I say, what happened? He said, well, we've decided to work that subject in with other subjects. We'll cover it in another way. And within about a week or two of that email, I find out that the editor and the CEO of the company, of, of the Geographic, are heading to to Beijing for to celebrate the new publishing partnership with the People's Republic of China. So you can connect the dots there, right? You can't show up to a party in Beijing to celebrate your new publishing partnership, which you've been working to, to put together for years, and show them your special issue on China that has 20 pages on censorship in China by this expat who teaches at BU. <laughs> right? It, you can't do business that way. So the story got killed. It got buried in a in a front matter thing that I, I wrote up. It was a couple of paragraphs long. And and then, so instead of that, I think they did a story about, you know, new construction in Beijing, about how many new buildings were going up or something. My point is that there were stories that we used to be able to do that would have appealed to that elderly gentleman in Bethesda that we no longer do because you can't get into... China and Russia and Saudi Arabia, if you're doing stories about James Madison, father of the Constitution. That, to me, was a substantive mistake. I think that you, you try to be everything to everyone, you're going to, be, you're going to turn into nothing. And so the environmental, the embrace of the environmental stuff, again, as John Fahey said, people are not interested in reading about it, right? But it is the imperative that we have as a business to get into the places we want to get into because we'll do the stuff that nobody wants to read, but it will open doors to us and we'll sell, you know, we'll sell some magazines there. We'll, 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 we'll have new opportunities. It sounds to me like it, it's more than just this shift of focus towards environmental issues, but it's sort of a backing away from relevant, important, powerful storytelling. Well, I think they would they would still say we'll still do environmental coverage and we'll still do you know stories about toxic wastes or air quality. I mean, those things are all fair game. You just can't do anything that's political. And National Geographic, in its name, National Geographic, is somehow about nations. It's about people coming together to form these entities 
that are called nations. And we used to do country stories, you know, a story about Italy, a story about Brazil. We, we do these broad sweeping stories. And for years, we have actually, the editors for many years were staunch anti-communists. We never did a story about the, the Soviet Union for years because they didn't want to cover it. But there was some sense that people were the center of what this society was about. I'll tell you another, one of my favorite stories about geographic. This was from like the 60s. And so the magazine for a good 20 years had been growing like gangbusters. The money, you know, the uh, membership was up and the money was coming in. So Melville Grosvenor, who was part of the Grosvenor family, which is really one of the founding families of the society, uh, he had been editor for years. He was sort of in his sunset years. He came into the magazine one day and told the then editor, Fred Vosberg, he said, I want to do a story about my trip up the uh, Hudson River. And, uh, and I, wanna, I want it to be about 55, 56 pages long. 56 pages, huge. So Vosberg said, Mel, I, I can't do that. He said, 56 pages, that's more space than I've given. Uh, I'm giving a story on the entire solar system. You want 55 for the Hudson River you know, sailboat trip? I, that's more than I'm giving this solar system story. And, Va and Melville Grosvenor says, yes, I know. He said, but there are no people out there, right? The message being... You know, the reason this magazine has thrived and survived is because we focus on people, not on planets, not on solar systems, not on trees, but on people. And I think he was right. I used to do in the last couple of years I was a geographic, I would take issues of the geographic and count up how many people were in the magazine versus how many landscape pictures, bald eagles and so on. And it was breathtakingly small. You know, I would do comparisons to what it was 20 years ago, and I don't have the numbers handy. But you could see what was happening visually. It was obvious to you that it was becoming, you know, animal planet on paper, and the people were disappearing. So once they disappeared from the pages, I think they disappeared from the membership roles. They could see at one level or another what was going on. I think of myself as as a wildlife filmmaker. I mean, you know, you mentioned that, earlier on that, you know, we have one of our films screening at the, the DC Environmental Film Festival. But, you know, in, in my mind, and, you know, I see this, and I hear this perspective from a lot of the filmmakers that I interact with. And this is something that gets talked about at all of these environmentally themed film festivals that that I attend, which is that the these outlets that are now largely television-based, like National Geographic Television and like Animal Planet, in losing that human focus to their stories, they are they're they're losing the the power that these stories have. You know the potential the potential power these stories have to impact people. They're not doing good storytelling, and I think you've hit on a really important component to where that failing is, which is that, you know, they're shying away from these stories that, that deal directly with these sort of complex interactions between human communities and wildlife communities. I mean, the reality is, is you can't tell a story about an ecosystem or about a particular wildlife species without talking about people. Because humans play this very active role in every single ecosystem on the planet. And, you know, failing to recognize that seems disingenuous, uh, you know, to, to me as a wildlife filmmaker, but I think also to, to lots and lots of audiences, you know. Um, and, and in my mind, that is, you know, one of the central components to 
um, the downfall of the National Geographic Society. Um, I, I do want to kind of pivot here. Alan, you obviously no longer work at National Geographic, um, as, as you mentioned, um, and you are now the, the host and producer of a new podcast series, um, a very political podcast series about the presidential candidacy of Bernie Sanders. Do you think National Geographic should be covering the presidential campaign? I mean, no. In the, in, in, no, I mean, there, there's so much coverage out there, and it's and and really the particulars of this political campaign are, I think, irrelevant to sort of what they are and what they were. Um, I don't think they it would be it, it would be they should ever cover it really that tightly. But I think the broader kinds of stories they used to do, you know, that this election exists in some kind of context, and we do it here for a particular reason. That's what those Jefferson and Madison stories were about. They were some attempt to say, despite who you may be supporting in this particular election, there's something that binds us together as a society. There's a constitution. There's a history that we share. There's an idea that we're trying to to live and an ideal that we're trying to live up to. And that, to me, the magazine used to do extraordinarily well. And the fact that it doesn't anymore. It doesn't see that that's part of its its sort of editorial brief. I think that's what the loss is. Um, so, so no, I don't think I don't think they should be focusing on the particulars of a campaign, but they can help people understand the frame around which this campaign exists. I'll give you an example of sort of how politics and and the environment can kind of overlap in weird ways. So this is. This is a good 10, 15 years ago, but Geographic did a a big uh, editorial initiative. This was magazine stories, TV coverage, books, all kinds of stuff about an initiative in Gabon in Africa. Uh, An environmentalist by the name of Mike Fay walked something like 1,500 miles across this rainforest doing this biological survey, you know, mapping trees and elephant turds and all kinds of things. It was called the Megatransect. And he walked for months and months and months and months, and it was fully documented. And it was a huge project. At the end of it, he goes to see the president of Gabon and shows him what, you know, what resources and what, what beauty there is in Gabon. And with a stroke of the pen, the president of Gabon sets aside, I think it was about 11% of the land mass of Gabon as national park land. And this was celebrated by Geographic. Look at what we've accomplished in Gabon. Look at what happened. Which on first glance sounds like a wonderful thing until you realize that the president of Gabon had been the president of Gabon for 40-some years. He had a horrible human rights record. People during the Egyptian, uh, you know, the Arab Spring, you know, people were, were in the streets of Cairo. Well, they were also in the streets of Gabon protesting the 40-year tenure of this president for life who had i think had just had just died and then turned over the presidency to his son and the reason i tell you that story is environmentally it sounds like a wonderful story but politically it's a horrible story it would be nothing that we would celebrate here because we don't give people that kind of power we don't celebrate that kind of dictatorial environmental heavy-handedness but we cast a blind, you know, the geographic ends up casting a blind eye to it because they care more about elephants and trees than they care about the people who live there, just as a priority. It's not saying that they don't care at all. It's just what comes first, what matters most. And when you put elephants and trees and the environment ahead of the people, 
who live in Gabon, that's what you get. So again, I would say we all have certain environmental concerns. I don't think anyone speaks against the planet, but we have very different ideas about politically what what a what a what a model society might look like. So I don't know if that that answers your question, but I think again, I wouldn't focus tightly on an election, but I think the magazine used to do a very good job of saying of of highlighting difference. That's I think was was key to its success. It, it highlighted contrast when when you used to see photographs of bare-breasted, you know, natives in the pages of the magazine. It wasn't, you know, what you were really experiencing when you looked at the picture at some level was there are some places in the world where women walk around with their breasts bare and there are other places where, the, where we, we don't. Isn't that interesting? It was the difference that made the magazine what it was. And now I think that the goal is to say, what's the same? We all care about elephants. We all care about the planet. Something gets lost in translation um, when you make that shift. You know, I got a, I got a question for you, if I'm if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm curious as to as a filmmaker when you when you show a film or or when you share a film at a film festival, are people responding more? And I know, this is kind of a hard question, but are they responding more to the substance of your film? You know, that was an amazing you know ecosystem that you documented, or an amazing guy that you covered, or are they responding more to the filmmaking itself? You know, how did you do that and how long did it take? In other words, is it more about the film or is it more about the subject of the film when you engage people, uh, when people experience your work? I think when you're successful as a filmmaker, all the questions are about the subject material. That's certainly not universally true because there's always going to, you know, when you're screening a film, there's always going to be a few people in the audience that are just interested in the technical details of filmmaking and how that works. But, you know, when, when we screen uh, our most recent film, the one that we're screening in, at the D.C. Environmental Film Festival in a few weeks, uh, Bluebird Man, when we screen that film and then take questions from the audience afterward, almost all of the questions are about the main character in our film, Al Larson, different components of his program. I mean, that's, that's everything. And I, I think when you're successful in, in producing a film that, that is impactful and that is inspiring to people... All of the technical filmmaking stuff, if you succeed, then people don't notice it. Right. They just get pulled into the story. You know, you, you achieve that suspension of disbelief. You forget that you're watching a film and you just feel a part of um, the story and of a character's life. So somewhat related question is, why do you think, getting back to the campaign, why do you think environmental issues are barely a blip on, say, the debates Environmental issues don't seem to come up very often in the debates or on the campaign trail. Why do you think that is? To be honest, I think that the reason for that is that the vast majority of people in our country and people in our world do not understand the true scale and nature of the situation that we face and the, 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 the issues and problems that um, the issue of climate change brings up for everybody on the planet. Um, I, I think the fact that that issue is, is, is not front and center um, in every single debate highlights just an unbelievable, um, I, I, you know, I don't even know, uh, like an unbelievable, you know, maybe that's a failure of, you know, our sort of like 
you know, media and journalistic system as a whole and its inability to sort of communicate the urgency of that issue. You know, I, I don't know what what to to sort of point to um, in, in in that regard. Um, I, I yeah. see it as the absolute most important issue, you know, for us to to, to sort of address as a species, as a culture. It, it stuns me at some level just because, you know, God, God knows, you know, we were for all the time I was at Geographic, you know, we beat that drum incessantly. And I, I don't. I can't really point and say it, it's mattered, you know, that it actually made a dent. They just keep at it. And and at some point the repetition doesn't serve them well because there was, there's that sense of, you know, there they go again. You know, we already, we get it. We know what you're saying, but it, it's puzzled me. And I just, I began to wonder, you know, and maybe this is just a sign of my, you know, advanced age, but the, um, just the ability of, photography particularly maybe filmmaking more generally to change hearts and minds to basically make people walk out of a film and just say wow i used to think about this issue like this but now i think about it like that it's completely changed my my point of view films really do have that power you know i mean i think a well-produced film does have the ability to inspire you know a whole group of people to take action on a particular issue or at least to bring an issue into sort of the public consciousness so name uh, one that's done that for you and and has done so on a, a broader public scale i would point to um the film gasland i i see that film as a, a crucial turning point in the attitudes that that we have at least in this country towards fracking for extracting natural gas you know, before that film came out, that that is an issue that was not, I, I think, just very, very few people were aware of, you know, even within sort of activist uh, environmentalist circles. That film really brought that issue to the forefront of discussions about the environment and climate change. But of course, at the same time, I mean, you take a film like that, which I see as sort of one of the best examples over the past decade or so of a film that really had a, a, a dramatic impact on sort of the, the general mindset of folks in this country. But, you know, ha has it stopped the, the natural gas industry from doing this hydraulic fracturing and extracting natural gas? And, you know, has it, has it stopped this natural gas boom? I mean, no, absolutely not. Um, I mean, it's led to a lot of sort of incremental positive actions uh, on that front. I, I don't necessarily think that situation that we're in in regards to the climate change issue specifically you know i i don't i don't really believe that it represents sort of like a a a, a failure for for anyone for any one individual or for any you know for media or or, or anyone you know there are, are so many people doing good work trying to you know tell stories about climate change and to sort of you know inspire people to to get involved in the issue or to take action on some level or another um, you know, there's lots and lots of people doing good work there and, and, and telling really powerful stories. You know, I mean, you talked about the fact that, you know, Nat Geo has been covering that issue for a long time. But, you know, I mean, there are really there, there's some really good storytelling, you know, delving into sort of the, the, the human side of what's going on with climate change. However, just because of the nature of the issue, because it is this global issue and because it's an issue where, you know, the individual actions of a person really don't matter you know it's an issue where you really have to action really has to be taken on a global scale it has to come from within our political system i think the failing is on 
a political level. And, you know, that that is what is most appealing to me about about Bernie Sanders and his campaign is the fact that more so than any other candidate, he is talking about the urgency of this issue. But he's also not branding climate change as an environmental issue. Whereas I think even the other candidates who are talking about how it is important to address climate change when they bring it up, you know, it sort of falls into this category of this is this is one of, you know, this long list of environmental issues that that, you know, that we have to deal with as a country. Uh, Bernie Sanders is up there saying, no, climate change is the greatest threat to our national security. And we've never seen a candidate talk about climate change um, in that context. Um, and I, I think that represents a really dramatic political shift. Um, and I, I think it's very important for people to see that that perspective. Um, so, I mean, even though it is not, you know, the number one issue, he's not spending, he's spending a lot more time talking about, you know, income inequality and campaign finance reform, which I think are connected in certain ways to I mean, to everything, to, to climate change and all these other issues. But, you know, even though it is not, you know, his number one focus, um, he's talking about that issue in a different context, in a context that we haven't seen um, from any other politicians uh, on, on that level. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's far, far and away better than anybody else in the field. I just, yeah, I just, I come back to the whole issue of just whether or not pictures and filmmaking you know, does it really have the the power to change the nature of the debate? And I, I'm not saying it doesn't. I just, I worry about it more than I used to. I remember last September, there was a photograph, you probably remember, of a uh, of a boy named Alan Curdy, I think his name was. He was a, a Syrian, like a three-year-old Syrian boy whose body washed up on the, a stony beach in Turkey. And it was, you know, it made headlines around the world. It was just he was face down, you know, right at the water's edge. He had drowned and washed ashore. And when the photograph of his corpse, you know, made headlines around the world, millions of people suddenly awoke to the horrors of the Syrian refugee crisis. And it lasted for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. But pretty quickly, that image receded from our collective memory. and We all moved on. And then earlier, I think it was this month, the Chinese artist uh, Ai Weiwei, I think is the way you pronounce his name, recreated that same photograph. He lay face down on a cold, stony beach somewhere in Europe, I think it might have been in Italy, playing dead. And he recreated the photograph and the resulting image made headlines around the world. For, you know, and for a moment, our memories of that dead, you know, from that picture pointed back to the Syrian toddler that pointed back to the refugees. But within a day or two, we all moved on again. And that that image of of an artist who feels like he's got to make a picture of this picture of this horrible thing that happened in real life was bothered me because it just was the sense of even the real thing we can't see and the picture of the thing we, we, we respond to for a very short period of time. So we need this additional cue of this guy replicating the original image. And then we just fall into this hall of mirrors of images that somehow don't connect us to what's going on in the world. You know, my my worry at the end of my tenure at Geographic was that photographs and wildlife documentaries and the rest are not really a window on the wall uh, on the world as much as they are a wall on the world. We we see them for as objects instead of as portals to something beyond themselves. And 
that's that really is was kind of the root of my worry when I left was that I just I wasn't 100% we just a wash in images and whether or not they really have the power to move us in the way that we may have used to think that they could I, I don't know I don't have an answer to it but I worry about it I think that photo just standing alone told a really powerful story and I think that's why you know, like you talked about it, it sort of exploded throughout the world and into the consciousness of so many people. You know, it is certainly troubling to see that fade so quickly and, and for people to lose attention. But all of those people who saw that image and who were, um, you know, had an emotional reaction to it, um, I think they're changed. You know, I, I think, you know, even though they're maybe not paying attention, they're not clicking the like button, you know, so you can't like measure their reaction in the online space any longer, you know, once that that sort of fades away, those folks who were exposed to that story, you know, hopefully it changed their attitude, maybe just in an incremental way. And that impacts the decisions that they make. Um, and, you know, they're more knowledgeable out, uh, uh, about what's going on in the world as a whole. And hopefully that leads to them, you know, making more informed decisions, you know, in, uh, the democratic society in which we live, right? I mean, that's all we can hope for. <laughs> well, you know, um, let me, I don't know if this is going too far down the rabbit hole, but let me just tell you one last story. Sure. And, then, <laughs> and this is the one, again, it's one that's haunted me from my geographic days, but do you know who E.O. Wilson is? I do, I do. Yeah, so E.O. Wilson's, you know, famous Harvard biologist, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, really, you know, made his name with uh, ant biology, the biology of ants. But he quickly sort of transitioned and started writing books about all kinds of big ideas, right? So one of his uh, one of his attempts to kind of knit everything together and come up with a, a big picture was a book called Consilience, the Unity of Knowledge, right? And, you know, it's kind of a complicated book, but essentially his argument in the book is that the universe is a giant, intricate machine, right? And what you see is what you get, right? There's, there's, he's a scientist, so he's an experimental scientist. He's a biologist. So there's nothing more than what meets the eye to E.O. Wilson, which in a way is a nice shorthand for photography, right? If you can't see it, then you can't take a picture of it. It doesn't exist. We can only put, you know, we can only take pictures of things we can see. Um, so there's another guy by the name of Wendell Berry, who's an environmentalist. He's a writer. He's a farmer in Kentucky, I think. And he's a Christian. And he wrote a book that was a response to E.O. Wilson's Life is a uh, Consilience. And Wendell Berry's book is called Life is a Miracle. It's an extended rebuttal, really, to Consilience. And the short version of his argument is that um, – the universe is not simply a machine because there's much more to, to the world than what meets the eye, right? And so he's a Christian. Needless to say, Dr. Wilson was an extraordinarily popular guy at National Geographic because his worldview was the geographic's worldview. What you see is what you get. You know, we can only take pictures of things that we can put in front of the lens. So he regularly got the microphone at Geographic to say what he wanted to say and to show the pictures that he wanted to show, to, to show. Whereas Wendell Berry and his life is a miracle, as far as I know, has never been asked to write a story for National Geographic. That divide to me touches on what the limitations are to photography. 
because Barry's worldview, the story, if you will, that he tells about people and the world that they live in is rooted in a whole bunch of things that can't be captured by a camera. And, you know, this is could be a, a multi-hour conversation, but that to me, again, it, it addressed sort of this this wall we run into with photojournalism and with filmmaking that somehow your eye will mislead you, that really what matters is not what we're seeing, but something, some other dimension, for lack of a better word. Um, so again, it goes to my issues that we started with, which was just sort of some of my reservations about what National Geographic, what pho- photography, what photojournalism and filmmaking can achieve and and the, and the ways that it can or cannot connect with what makes us human. I did just kind of want to, as a final note, both of us grew up outside of Boston and are both, both of us are longtime Boston Red Sox fans. And on your uh, website for your your podcast series, Searching for Bernie, you you actually compare uh, Bernie's presidential campaign to the Red Sox's uh, epic 2004 comeback in the ALCS against the Yankees. So I, I just have to ask you, as a, as a final note, um, you know, I, I feel like this is sort of the, the litmus test for Red Sox fans. Where, where were you in 2004 when the Red Sox won it all? Yeah, no, I was in my basement with my two kids who were a lot younger then. You know, they're both uh, teenagers now. And uh, yeah, we were in the, we were transfixed by the whole run, and it was it was magical because it was that sense that you know after at least for me you know they didn't know any better, but for me it was just as you well know growing up outside of Boston, just years and years of disappointment, and they finally finally found a way to break through, and it was it was magical. I've I've watched that uh, thirty by uh, thirty for thirty uh, documentary many times, the four days in October, because it was just so unlikely and so magical and you know whether or not bernie can pull it off you know why not us was the kurt schilling rallying cry i think after game five (laughs) um but it's uh yeah it's a it's a long shot and bernie you know you know in some ways the red sox had to had to overcome some systemic issues right it wasn't just the players but it was a whole philosophy where you know, they started spending money on free agents. They went to go get Kurt Schilling and they changed, they had new ownership and they changed the philosophy of how they approached the game. So it wasn't just, you know, a flash in the pan. They were a very different team after John Henry bought the team and has pumped so much money into it. That's, you know, they they went out this winter and spent a lot of dough on David Price and, and other free agents. So, um, so in that way, I think, you know, Bernie's trying to do do the same thing, which is he's trying to change the rules somehow. He's trying to, uh, you know, create a movement. There was a great Robert Reich video that came out in the last couple of days where he said, you know, if you want, if you want business as usual, if you think the system can't cha- can't change, Hillary is your candidate. If you're a Democrat, she's she knows how the system works and and how Washington works, and she's got the experience to be that kind of president. So if you want that, she's she's your your candidate. But if you believe that it can be better than it is, you have some sense that there could be something else happening, you know, in Washington, then, you know, Bernie is trying to build a movement and he would be your candidate. So that was a great distillation of something I know we've all discussed many times, but I think that's kind of what's at stake uh, with the campaign. But um, but I got off track. I was I was in the basement with my kids and it was a magical run and. Uh, it was nothing, nothing quite like. It. I'll tell you this, my so we live outside of Washington D.C. and after that season, 
that Washington Nationals move to town, and I try to convince my kids to root for them because they, the Nationals are their hometown team, and they both just looked at me and shook their heads and said, no, Dad, you know, we're Red Sox fans. We'll always be Red Sox fans. <laughs> so it was a, a seminal moment for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think it highlights just kind of bringing this back to, the, you know, sort of the, the central theme of our conversation is it highlights the power of good storytelling. Right. And it sort of brings up this question of like, what is the power of a story? Um, and, you know, I think that is one of the central questions that folks should be asking about what Bernie Sanders is doing right now. You know, I mean, he's controlling this narrative because he has the most powerful story to tell, um, you know, and I, I think I think it is in, in a certain sense what Bernie is doing right now is um, a, a testament to the power of good storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thanks a lot uh, for for coming on the show. It's been a, a super interesting conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That was our conversation with podcast host and freelance journalist Alan Merson. And I must say that I am extremely pleased that I was able to incorporate Red Sox fandom into today's conversation with Alan. It's clear that Alan has a really unique perspective on the state of environmental journalism in today's world, and it was absolutely fascinating to hear him talk about the internal politics of the National Geographic Society. I also really appreciate Alan's perspective on the presidential race, and I would strongly encourage folks to check out his new podcast series, Searching for Bernie. Even if you're not a Bernie supporter yet, Alan invites guests onto his show that represent a wide array of political viewpoints. Um, his interview with former Massachusetts governor and uh, presidential candidate Michael Dukakis was uh, particularly interesting, I thought. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Alan's podcast, as well as his unique perspective on the National Geographic Society, we will have additional resources and links over on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC59. Today's episode is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.